I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, outs, and nitty gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... The Tragic Life of Betty Page. Who was Betty Page? Well, she's the most photographed pinup model in American history. She served as an icon of beauty, risque fashion, and a burgeoning post-war sexuality. However, she also suffered from prolonged mental health issues, hospitalizations, and tragic abuse. Despite being adored by millions across generations, by the 1990s, no one was quite sure what had happened to her. Her whereabouts were such a mystery, in fact, that a contest was held in the pages of Penthouse Magazine for anyone that could prove whether she was alive or dead. Act 1. Leather and Lace and blunt cut bangs. Between the years of 1949 and 1957, over 20,000 mail order photos of Betty Page in bondage were taken. 20,000. Just let that sink in for a second, but we'll get to that. We have to go back to the start, childhood. Born on April 22, 1923 in Kingsport, Tennessee, Betty Mae Page was the second of six children and didn't exactly have an idyllic childhood. Her father was a mechanic and life during the Great Depression was, as the name would suggest, depressing. Her father had trouble paying bills and when Betty was 10, her parents divorced. This sent Betty and her two sisters into an orphanage for just over a year. Her father was eventually able to regain custody of her, only to begin abusing her and molesting her as a young child. Despite this abhorrent behavior that was happening behind closed doors, Paige excelled in school. She attended Nashville Hume Fogg High School and became homecoming queen. She even landed a scholarship to George Peabody College. She married her high school sweetheart, Billy Neal, and moved to San Francisco shortly after graduating. Paige modeled on the side and took a job as a secretary in order to keep- Wait, no, wait, you're, you're gonna, now, now you say I'm Dave Baker, right? That's the end of the episode, right? We just got, we just got like a full episode worth of fucked up shit. That's, I can't, I can't go any further. I, that, that has to, this has to be the end. Yeah, it's definitely the end. She was abused as a kid, had to grow up during the Great Depression as part of six, uh, six kids, and then uh, graduated high school and got offered a scholarship, didn't take it, got married, moved to San Francisco, and just lived happily ever after uh, while trying to unpack the trauma that she'd already endured. I mean, that, sh- that shit was dark. It's just, it- it's so, <laughs> like, that little description was like, oh my God. That's a fucking lifetime's worth of, if like one of those things happened to me, I'd be like, I'm done. I'm catatonic forever. Leave me alone. Like, and, and some of the things it's so, I mean, I know like life was, was generally more bleak and depressing, like further, the further back in time you go, like the rougher things are, but just, just stuff like, oh, their parents got divorced. So they had to live in an orphanage. Like now it's like, my parents got divorced, so I had two Christmases. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, Jesus Christ, that's fucking bleak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My parents got divorced, so now I have two birthdays. But no, it's like, my parents got divorced. I had to live in a fucking orphanage. Yeah, that's what happened, yeah. Paige modeled on the side and took a job as a secretary in order to keep her meager living situation stable. It was during this time that Paige landed her first and only Hollywood audition, a screen test for a local producer who, during the process of shooting the screen test, attempted to sleep with her. She did not reciprocate, and the audition failed to land her any work. 
This might sound like a horrible first experience with Hollywood, and objectively it is. But for context, this was standard operating procedure. Scummy producers would prey on young girls' hopes and dreams of becoming famous for personal gain. In the 50s, this reprehensible behavior was par for the course. Ultimately, Paige and Billy Neal divorced in 1947. A year later, she moved to New York City and met a man named Jerry Tibbs. Tibbs would be someone who would change her life forever. A police officer by day and amateur photographer by night, Tibbs saw Paige on Jones Beach in Long Island in 1949 and approached her. Have you ever thought about modeling? He said. This rather innocent question was only partially true. Tibbs was the proprietor of what in those times was called a nude camera club. Basically, amateur softcore porn. All right, so now we're going to watch this video, which is one of, uh, one of his um, little films that he would make. Um, it's a silent film that's been posted on YouTube, so the clip has um, random music on it that's not the actual music for <laughs> that they made, obviously. Uh, so we see three women all in lingerie, and uh, one of them is on a couch pretending to be resisting while Betty Page and another woman are tying her up, giving her a gag, and uh, binding her arms and feet with a uh, rope. Um, yeah, what, what do you what do you think about this, Spandrew? I mean, I know that people are still into this kind of stuff now, obviously, but also just like the relative tameness of it is funny to me that it's like, I mean, there's there's something dark behind the fact that all these women are just like doing this because they just want to like make it in, you know, that they're, they're being kind of exploited. Like, like there's a darkness to the behind the scenes of it, but just the video itself, it's just, it's, it's like so comedically tame. It's like women in just like, very large underwear that's has more cover than a bikini just kind of tying each other up and just kind of like being like oh no it's funny that just people in the 50s are just like this like we're fucking starving for shit like this is all this this turns me on because otherwise i ain't i ain't got much going on yeah now uh betty page is holding the woman's feet while uh, the third woman is spanking her, but it's like not even real. It's like it's like it's like very like pantomimed. Yeah, yeah, it's not. It's she's not really getting hurt. There's not really any significant contact of hand meeting buttocks. Um, but they're really going for it, man. They're just spanking, and it's it's really funny too because they're like, and dudes in the 1950s were just going full hog on this video. <laughs> Yeah, it's so silly that it's just like, and now we're walking across the carport. <laughs> oh no, I have to jump through the gravel to get into the trunk of this Studebaker. <laughs> and and yeah, there's also, I mean, I'm like, I'm not trying trying to kink shame for people who are into bondage stuff at all, but there's all, it's like not even, it's, it's not even, there's a little bit more to it than just bondage. It's like, this is like a kidnapping a woman scenario. There's something kind of dark about that. I love, too, how the woman who's not Betty Page keeps looking to camera like, is this what you want? Yeah, I mean, they're all kind of doing that. They're all they're all just kind of like enduring this video shoot. They're just like, I'm supposed to be doing this. Hopefully it's over some sometime soon. 
It's very silly. It's very silly. We could we could stop it. We don't have to keep going. This honestly, this literally almost to a one to one degree reminds me of like three or four years ago, or maybe it was sooner. I don't know. The COVID kind of like warped my sense of like time in the last 10 years. But these videos that got really popular on YouTube that were like these weird little like videos of like somebody dressed as Elsa from Frozen and somebody dressed as Spider-Man. And then they would like run around and they would like tickle each other and things like that. And it was all kind of done in fast motion. And these videos got super popular on YouTube and got like millions and millions of views because somebody basically like figured out how to like trick the algorithm into showing these videos to like little kids who are just like on their tablets watching YouTube. And it became this huge controversy because they're not really appropriate for kids. They're kind of almost like light. They, I mean, they're videos like this. They're just like, Spider-Man's tickling Elsa. Like there's something a little bit sexual about it. And so they like banned these videos from YouTube. And this this is like, they're almost identical to this. Hey man, history, it's uh, it's uh, it's cyclical, baby. It's cyclical. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I love, I love this. I'm so into it. I think it's great. Uh, I think Betty pa- Betty Page is a fascinating person, and also how someone's image can be utilized and and work as a synecdoche for almost like a generational uh, sexual awakening is fascinating to me. You know, like obviously there's the Marilyn Monroe version of it where she's the kind of sanitized, squeaky clean like blonde bombshell you know that serves as america's post post, america post-war being like oh yeah you know the our puritanical roots are obviously still fucking everywhere in our culture even today but the idea of a woman using her sexuality to get ahead in life and becoming known for her sexuality specifically as a primary attribute and her blonde hair and her larger pieces of anatomy uh, is is really uh fascinating to me Huge toes, man. That, that bitch got giant fucking pinky toes, no less. Giant pinky toes. Um, but it's it, it's equally as interesting to me that she would be on one end of the spectrum and then the Betty Page version of it, which is kind of like the darker side of or, or the more underbelly side of American sexual history during this time period where, you know, it's all about bondage and, and uh, fetish objects and costumes and people expressing themselves and having a an allure of sexual freedom that they don't have in their everyday life that is expressed through the the totem of betty page is is very uh interesting to me yeah it's also super fascinating how all of that the iconography behind all that that represents is all laid on largely laid on the back of this one woman who had a very relatively short career and just it, it, it's it's so interesting how that this one person who objectively just had this very insignificant impact on culture ends up having this huge impact on culture because of the way in which people chose to use her as like a totemic representation of that like Marilyn Monroe she she actually really did like embody that in pop culture and was this huge sort of cultural figure, whereas Betty Page at the time really wasn't. It was almost like it's almost like it's it's like a it's like something being retroactively imbued with with uh, a lot of meaning that wasn't necessarily there before. Yeah, totally. 
And also the fact that it was like a literal secret, right? Like a lot of her photography was distributed through like illicit mail service, you know, companies, you know, where you'd be like, I'll, I'll send you a check for $5 and then I'll get four three by two photos that I can jerk off to in my foxhole, you know, like because she was hugely popular with military types and all that kind of stuff during like the Korean War and everything. Paige agreed to model for Tibbs, but was unsure at first. However, she was so photogenic and such a delightful on-camera presence that she made a name for herself almost overnight. Soon, her photos were seen in Wink and Flirt magazine, but it would be her 1955 Playboy centerfold photo that took her career to the next level. This would be the photo that grabbed the attention of Irving Pinup King Claw, who specialized in bondage and costume photography. Claw operated a mail-order pinup porn business that shipped thousands of 4x5 index card photos across the country, especially to enlisted men. Can we just can we just talk for a second about how amazing the name Irving Claw is? Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, he sounds like a fucking supervillain, right? Yeah, that's like, that's a Bond villain right there. A hundred percent, yeah. It's too on the nose. It's like, it's too good for a Bond villain, because you'd be like, I don't know. Irving Claw, mm, I don't know. And the thing is, like in the James Bond movie, he has the same job. Like the the villain, like he's like by day, he's this like pin up softcore porn kingpin, and then by night, he's like trafficking women and and running this underground like gambling ring or something. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, it's called uh, the world cannot come enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> absolutely that's what it's called <laughs> the world can't come close enough <laughs> claw operated a mail order pinup and porn business that shipped thousands of four by five index cards across the country especially to enlisted men these photos would be what put Paige on the map she became an instant favorite of men across generations but this good fortune hard work and charisma would be short-lived as Betty Page would soon discover dark times ahead. Very dark times indeed. So I guess my next question then is what, what's your, what's your relationship with Betty Page? What, can you remember the first time you saw her? Have you seen that movie, the notorious Betty Page? Yeah, I, d- I did see the, I did see the movie a while back. Um, I don't remember much about it. I think I watched it on TV at some point. Um, and I, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't think I would call myself a fan. I mean, not it's that's not a that's not a statement in the opposite either. That's not like a like I don't like her or like I disapprove of what she did or anything like that. I just I have like almost no opinion on her other than the fact that like like I said before, I think it's very fascinating for this one person with this relatively like obscure career to have become almost like the face of an entire sexuality movement. I find that incredibly fascinating. Um, and yeah, I mean, I see, I see, uh, number one, I constantly see, constantly see pe- people posting pictures of her in stories and, and on their feeds and like on Facebook and Instagram, like it's a very common thing for friends to be like sharing pictures of Betty Page or whatever. And you also see all of these photo shoots and photography and styles of dress that are like very directly inspired by like the Betty Page aesthetic. Um, when you get into like 
the rockabilly culture and like the greaser culture, people, you know, who are our age, who got really into dressing like they were in the 1950s and things like that, like almost all of the the women's fashion in that is inspired by a combination of like Betty Page and then also just like a more domestic 1950s like housewife aesthetic, I guess. Um, so it's like this weird dichotomy where they dress like this mixture of these two like polar opposite things, which is also very fascinating. Um, but yeah, other than that, I, I, I wouldn't say that I have like too much of a fascination with her work, her, her life and career is fascinating to me for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, this will not be surprising, but I fucking love Betty Page. Yeah. But see, I'm not, I'm not a pervert though. Count me in baby. Cause I'm, I'm fucking here. I'm here for it, man. I'm out here. I'm just like, yeah, let, let's go. Let, let's go Betty Page. I'm so, I'm so here for it. Yeah. This is, this is like a whole other conversation. And I was joking, obviously, about saying that. Um, but the, the the I think I've always like when I was a little kid. This is, God damn it! This is another one of those things where people are like, "Oh, they get too off topic." But it fucking relates. Uh, I don't know if this is a neurodivergent thing or what. But whenever I was a little kid, my stepmom got me a Christina Aguilera jigsaw puzzle, and it was like Christina Aguilera like posing all you know sexily. And I just didn't get it. I was like, why would I want this? <laughs> wait, how old? Yeah, no, I, wait, hold on. But before we move through the rest of the story, how old were you? I was, I was probably, I was like, I don't remember exactly, but I was somewhere around like I was in like fifth, sixth, seventh grade, something like that. And your stepmom was just like, hey, I know you're beating that meat, but at least do a puzzle beforehand. I mean, the idea of that was the motivation is hilarious and i would choose to believe that that is what she was trying to do like at least challenge yourself intellectually before you jerk off i i fully accept that that is the real story i love her i love her coming home and she's like got the groceries <laughs> she's like oh yeah you know uh, you know andrew i've got uh, i've got all these different little little things i got these got some celery i got some ketchup and i got a puzzle for you i i know you're spending a lot of time in the bathroom recently i want you to just just solve this puzzle before you go in there just just spend a little longer in the bathroom that's all i'm asking <laughs> Just, just challenge yourself mentally before you stroke it, okay? Like, just... <laughs> I mean, maybe she was, like, trying to teach you how to, like, like treat women correctly or something. Because aren't the lyrics to that song, like, I'm a genie in a bottle, baby. Uh, you gotta rub me the right way. <laughs> She's like, you gotta learn how to rub it the right way. <laughs> I mean, yes, I, whatever the real story is, this is what I accept as canon. This is this is head canon. This is light. This is outside head canon. Whatever, whatever it needs to be. I love, I love this so much. <laughs> I didn't I didn't think you would fixate on that detail specifically. But then again, like it was a thing that happened to me. So I don't think I think about it as weird as it probably sounds. It's great. It's great. I love I love it. I love it so much. But but I think I mean aside from that, aside from the fact that she was trying to create a an obstacle course for my masturbation, um I think that she was I think it was just like a thoughtless like oh like boys like hot girls. Here's like a a, a hot girl thing for you to have. Like 
I think that was like a thing. Like you get a picture, a, a poster of Britney Spears in your room or whatever. Like my cousin had like a like a poster of Britney Spears hanging in his room, even though he did not like the music of Britney Spears. And I was just like, I, I was, I, I was like, why would I want this? I, I like, I, I don't want a, a puzzle of Christina Aguilera. And the thing about that was, and still is to this day, is I, I don't understand why people have like crushes on celebrities. Like I, I don't get it. Like it doesn't the, the the concept of it doesn't make any sense to me. That when people are just like, oh, like Rihanna's my wife. I don't I don't get it. I don't understand the psychological idea of like having like a a crush or like a fascination or like a fixation on a stranger that you will never meet. But you you don't understand the idea that like you would be attracted to the persona of someone even if you don't know them or it's like oh carrie fisher is pretty and smart and she's princess leia and that's cool like that that's not a thing you, that doesn't make sense no like not in that way like i think i think people like obviously like anybody else i find certain celebrities to be like charismatic and oh they seem like a nice person or like oh that guy is really funny or that woman is really smart or whatever like i i find i i I find uh, people interesting in that way that I don't know, like strangers. But the idea of being like, oh, like I just, I like, I'm a, and and also like I'm, I'm I can be attracted to people's physical bodies, like that. That's I know I've I've had to struggle with with the tension from you. Yeah, exactly. Like seeing you through the screen is it's hard to like I I I understand the idea of seeing somebody through a screen and being disconnected by them through an ocean. And still having an animalistic lust for them. <laughs> your mom, you you go back and you look at that poster that your mom gave you, your stepmom gave you, and it's not actually Christina Aguilera. It's just my face. <laughs> and she's like, "You're like, wait, yeah, oh wow, that makes so much more sense now that I wasn't attracted to this because it's not Christina Aguilera. Somehow it's Dave." It's just fucking Dave's face. As an adult. Yeah, as an adult. Even though he couldn't have been an adult in 1994 or whatever the fuck. <laughs> but the idea of the and once and I'm not saying that it's wrong or bad or like I just it's just something that I have never related to. But the idea of being like, ah, I just I'm a like I love Betty Page. I like I cause cause when people are sharing those photos over, they're not just being like, oh, this lady's fucking hot. Like that's not what they're doing. They're sharing it as this like holistic representation of like a a a a a a, a fascination with this person that is like a combination of of attractiveness, like a, a sexual fascination, as well as a fascination with like the attraction of the persona surrounding her, like you were just saying. And that like I just don't that doesn't happen for me. Like I I, don't, I just don't have that. I've never had like a celebrity crush or whatever. So I just don't I don't think I I just don't think I engage in that type of thing that people do with Betty Page as most other people do. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. I I, I understand where you're coming from. I mean, yes, I understand where you're coming from. Uh, but also I you know it's like you're saying like it's interesting that Betty Page. I mean, a is a cultural icon, especially in nerd circles. Like, I feel like now she's more mainstream. But, you know, when you and I were youngsters, um, you know, we were kind of at least I had like a front row seat to a lot of the like Betty Page explosion stuff because so much of it kind of bubbled up through 
90s and late 80s comics conventions. You know, there were a lot of people selling prints of her, a lot of artists doing drawings or recreations of the photos, specifically one artist that we'll get to later is like commonly known to be the, the person who like single handedly reinvigorated her career, um, you know, f- almost 50 years after she had stopped being a person in the in the public light as much as she ever was, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, me too. Definitely. Like I, whenever I was in high school, like people, women and men or girls and boys, I guess, were obsessed with Betty Page. Like not everybody, but like the stone table people, they were like obsessed with Betty Page. Yeah, yeah. And like you're saying, you know, horror punk, rockabilly, you know, the the kind of 50s throwback greaser kids, like every, all, all those people. She's like one of the primary influences in that kind of sphere of fashion and underground culture, you know. Um, and tragically, uh, you know, things are about to get a whole lot darker for her. So we'll hear about that after the break. Thanks for listening to this episode. You should definitely go like the Facebook page for the Deep Cuts pod because we do lots of cool video content on there that you'll be sure to like. Also, please join our Facebook group. That's Deep Cuts Podcast on Facebook and the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Also follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. Act two, it all comes crumbling down. One of the men who took interest in Betty Page's claw photos was Estes Kefauver, a Southern Democrat back when that was a thing. Kefauver wanted to make some noise politically, planning a presidential run. So in 1953, he opened a congressional hearing into juvenile delinquency. Fellow comics fans will know this as the Wortham and Bill Gaines hearings that destroyed the comic book industry. But he also called Claw to testify. And guess who else got maybe called to testify? There's differing opinions on whether what happened when Betty Page, queen of the pinups. Eric Stanton, comic book artist, smut peddler, and uh, former Steve Ditko roommate remembers, it was the only time I ever saw Betty upset. She was horrified at the prospect of having to testify against her friends. Thankfully, ultimately, Page was not forced to testify. However, the committee did blame her for a teenager's suicide. Clarence Grimm testified that his dead son, Kenneth, was found hanging by his knees and neck. The committee's special counsel, Vincent Gaugan, led him to confirm that the position was inspired by one of Claw's BDSM photos of Betty Page. Um, So before we run through the rest of this, I just want to drill down into this a second. The same congressional hearings, the Kefauver hearings from 1953 to 55, the ones that destroyed the comic book industry, also brought forth Irving Claw and used multiple photos of Betty Page as key examples of how their work was negatively influencing the youth. And then later, 50 years later, the comic book industry, having been somewhat starting to be rehabilitated uh, from, in a commercial sense, is directly responsible for Betty Page resurgence in cultural prominence. That is fucking weird. Indeed. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it's also I don't think I don't even think I knew that aspect of it, that the, like the the Wortham trials or just that whole thing. There was also this other stuff going on where they were like it wasn't just focused specifically on comics. It was like they were trying to, like, interrogate like the the, the breadth of like youth culture and accuse all these different things of corrupting the youth. I didn't know that either, because I obviously I'm always exposed to the comics side of it. 
And when I was doing the research for this and found out that they like straight up were, you know, going to maybe subpoena Betty Page slash maybe they did and she got out of it. There's different reports, but like that's fucking insane to me. It's just so weird. I never I never had heard about that before this, uh, which is fascinating. Yeah. And you can it also just makes it even more like evident that it's all bullshit because it's like. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, we, there was this one specific thing that we were we thought was very important and we were sort of like focusing on this. It was they were just like they were just grabbing anything they could like, yeah, like fucking comics or like these pictures of these girls. Like they were just like they were trying to like get any foothold into basically banning like counterculture. By the end of the hearings, Irving Claw's business was in shambles and Betty Page was leaving town for a new life. She moved to Florida, where she was born again and joined a Baptist church on New Year's Eve 1957. She was recently remarried, but then divorced quickly after, and would not remarry again until 1967. Her third spouse, Harry Lear, was confronted with the worst of Paige's mental health problems. She would lash out in bursts of uncontrollable anger. She ran through a Boca Raton ministry retreat with a 22 caliber pistol in January of 1972. Okay, but but also like that's very scary and concerning, but also that's a panic at the disco lyric. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. In April, she forced her husband and children to pray to Jesus at knife point. Also a panic at the disco. That is also a panic at the disco lyric. While she was committed to Jackson Memorial for four months as a result of this, it wouldn't be till October of that same year that she would voluntarily recommit herself to another hospital for suicide watch. It was in 1978 that Harry Lear decided to separate from Paige and move on with his life. She moved to California to be closer to one of her brothers. However, tragically, this familial contact didn't help her or her declining mental health. After an argument with her landlady, she assaulted the woman with a knife. Soon after, Paige was diagnosed with schizophrenia and sent to Patton State Hospital for 20 months. It's so it's so like and once again, like obviously this these things still obviously affect people now and to act like things are just better is not accurate. But with all of the different options and treatments and things like that and advancements in medical technologies and therapy and all these things like things have improved to a certain to a certain extent. But it's so crazy how like, you know, in in decades past the 50s, the 40s, the 30s, it just seemed like it was like a dice roll of like, are you going to have just like kind of a normal life or are you just going to have the darkest life anyone ever heard of? Like it was like it was like a dice roll. It seemed like the it seemed like the trajectory of going down a bad path just had way more momentum. There was there was there was way more multipliers that guaranteed if you started to veer into entropy that you were just going to keep going off into the fucking stratosphere. Why do you think that is? Do you think that's maybe like the increased social connectivity today through like digital, you know, online personas where if you see someone being crazy on Instagram or whatever, you can contact their family easily or whatever? I, I don't know. Like why? I Because I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. I agree with you. I'm just being, I'm just kind of like thinking out like why... Is there slightly more of a social network, no pun intended, today? Yeah, it could be that. Like, yeah, whenever you start, like, people will notice more whenever you are exhibiting concerning behavior, even if it's just a lack of your presence. Like, why hasn't this person, like, literally somebody, like, got saved from having, like, a stroke or something like that because 
the people at Domino's like noticed that they weren't they didn't order the pizza that they usually order every day. And they're like, something's wrong. This person didn't order their pizza for the day through the Domino's app. And they sent like cops to check on them. Like, so I think that that definitely has an aspect of it for sure. Is that a real story or did you just make that up? Like, no, what that's the fuck a real is thing. that? I don't know if it was a stroke or was maybe maybe it was a heart attack or something like that. But this happened like four or five years ago. Somebody just ordered a pizza every single day from the, from this one Domino's using the Domino's app. And they didn't order the pizza and the people at the Domino's got concerned and sent a wellness check. And the person had like had a heart attack and was like would have died. Just goes to show you, man, you got to eat Domino's. They should have they should have done their whole like corporate, you know, messaging campaign off that Domino's. We protect people. Yeah. In order to in in order to stay alive and stay healthy, you have to eat a Domino's pizza every single day. A Domino's a day keeps the doctor away. Or not a Domino's a day will get you to a doctor. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this bit is done. This bit is done. It's a hell of a yes and. Yep. <laughs> well, that's 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 the alternate improv I learned was the what we learned was yep. It would be the next mental break that would be the worst for Betty Page, though. The details of this attack vary from witness to witness, but some have claimed that Page stabbed another one of her landladies repeatedly, and some claim that the altercation escalated to the degree where Page cut off multiple fingers from the poor woman. The case was taken to court, and Betty Page was found innocent by reason of insanity and sentenced to 10 years in a California hospital. When she was released in 1992, Betty Page discovered that she was now an icon to a new generation. Why? Simple. Dave Stevens. That's right. The Rocketeer creator and film industry illustrator had been generating artwork based on old photos of her and putting her in the Rocketeer comics as Cliff Secord's girlfriend, and an entire new generation of fans had fallen in love with her while she was away. She was undeniably one of America's most popular pinups. Betty Page only worked as a model for seven years, but amazingly, in just that short period of time, she appeared in more magazines than Marilyn Monroe and Cindy Crawford combined. During the 50s, Betty's picture was everywhere, on hundreds of books and magazine covers, monthly calendars, and even playing cards. No doubt about yeah, we can jump there. Cone-shaped bra to tweak the conservative mindset of the 1950s. They keep saying that I'm some sort of sexual innovator. I never thought of any of my poses as being sexual in any way. I never had anything like that in my mind when I was posing. Unfortunately, as one of the most admired pinups of her day, Betty's love life was far from perfect. Her three attempts at marriage failed and she even turned down an offer from Howard Hughes to meet with him. Popular Betty Page was one lonely model. Do you know when you start getting any name as a model, they shy away from you, they're afraid of you. I had fewer offers to go out in New York and in Miami than I ever did before I started modeling or since even. For seven years, Betty continued to model. But eventually, her priorities changed. She wanted something different out of life, something the modeling business couldn't supply. So in December 1957, at the height of her career, Betty Page packed her bags and left New York City. After seven years, you were all over all these magazine covers. Why did you quit? I thought I was getting too old. I was 34 years old. Not many pinup models were as old as I was. And I was almost 27 when I started modeling. 
And I thought there were too many pictures of me around. I thought the photographers wouldn't want to use me anymore. And I just sort of got tired of it. But even though Betty had dropped out of sight, her legacy of photos stayed in circulation over the years, gaining new fans. Numerous magazine and newspaper articles fueled interest. I just thought I was getting too old. I was basically geriatric. I was one foot in the grave. I was 34 years old. Yeah, it had nothing to do with the Kefauver hearings and me being scared I was going to be blamed for corrupting the youth and potentially sentenced to jail. Had nothing to do with that. It just I was just maybe getting a little old, maybe. This interview is just totally retconning history. Like the thing, the thing that we covered of like she basically like fled in after this horribly traumatic experience of like almost having to like rat on all of her friends and she was just like fucking done with the industry and then this it's like she just decided to pack her bags and move out of new york city her work and her whereabouts but it took a comic book called the rocketeer that featured betty to officially bring her back as a bona fide pop culture icon I gotta tell you, it's absolutely amazing just how popular Betty Page is after all this time. I mean, it's been nearly 40 years since the last pinup photo was shot of Betty, and today, check this out. There's Betty Page calendars, there's newsletters, there's trading cards. You like comic books? There's even a Betty Page comic book. Let's face it, after all these years, everybody still loves Betty. She's the third most popular pinup of all time, right behind Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield. Uh, and in many cases, she pushes Jane for second place. Betty Page is the last great icon of the 1950s. Like James Dean and Marilyn Monroe, she brought something modern to the era. When you look at a picture of Betty Page, you think you could know her, and that if you did know her, she would like you. She's like the girl next door. She's just the greatest American pinup, and that's why she's eternal. Now, what you're probably wondering right about now is, what does Betty Page look like today after all these years? But to tell you the truth, part of Betty's allure was that air of mystery that surrounded her ever since she dropped out of the limelight some 39 years ago. And besides, as far as Betty's concerned, she'd just rather her fans remember her the way she used to be. I wouldn't want to see a model when she's old and out of shape. Who would? There's nothing to look at. You want to look at them when they're young and beautiful, with beautiful bodies. I didn't look bad in the 50s, and I was in the best of health and had my figure and everything. I've only started falling apart the last couple of years. <laughs> I hate old age. <laughs> These days, Betty Page is leading a quiet and very private life in California. And even though Betty says she hates getting older, she's still pretty active and pursuing a variety of interests like gardening and dining out with friends. One of her favorite pastimes is just staying home late at night and watching old movies on cable TV. And you might be asking, who are Betty Page's favorite contemporary models? Well, Cindy Crawford and Claudia Schiffer top her list. Man, you know, it sounds like she still has. And you know, one of her favorite hobbies is being depressed. <laughs> One of her one of her favorite hobbies is being supremely mentally ill, and now she's unmedicated because she doesn't have a family support structure to help her and hold her accountable. I I, I mean the the thing that she says about like why would anybody want to look at an old model? There's nothing to look at. Is obviously very sad and like I mean I guess for me it's like I have no opinion either way. Like I I don't not want to look at you because you're old. Like that's ridiculous. Uh, I don't value you exclusively based on like how young and attractive you are, but also like if you don't want people to see you, like I don't. I also I'm not like insisting on like give us the fucking footage, like let us see you, like I like 
so that, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's sad that she would say that, but also, you know, I f- fully respect the, yeah, I think more people, more celebrities should have their privacy respected, uh, especially women. Uh, and it's, you know, and especially for her, it's, it's this kind of, you know, it's one thing if she had a persona like Marilyn Manson that was tied to parts or acting or being a singer or, or a skill or talent that she could be valued for later in life um, that she could still do and make money off of. Uh, but with her, it's really hard because you like, you know, you're like she even says, you know, like who wants to look at a model that's old because our culture is fucked up and values exclusively youth and beauty. And once the, those things fade, then it's very difficult to monetize your physical body, right? Yeah, and and to a certain degree, I don't know how conscious she is of this when she was saying that, but the idea of like I've had this resurgence as this massively popular uh, icon, and it's based solely and exclusively on just photos of me and the way that I looked, and for myself to like put my present image out into the world and like break the facade of like this is Betty Page might damage that in some way. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Even just on a like fan base level, you know, because like she says, she wants people to think of her as the 1950s version because that's the thing she's selling, right? She's selling her legacy, basically, Um, which is also, you know, it's kind of sad on one level. And also it's kind of shrewd as a business person on the other. While she was away, Penthouse Magazine offered anyone who could prove whether she was alive or dead $1,000. And ultimately, they didn't have to because she came forward herself. This is the this is the last known video of Betty Page. It was from a Playboy party. Uh, she's standing next to Hugh Hefner uh, holding a painting of her past self. So that's the that's what she looked like. Uh, standing next to Hugh Hefner. Uh, uh, Spandrew, do you want to you want to describe uh, what what Betty Page looks like later in life? Yeah, she looks like Roseanne's mom from the Roseanne show. That's a very specific reference. You have to like be familiar with that actress, but she just that's just what she looks like. But yeah, she's she's just like she's just like a pretty normal looking elderly lady. She's like wearing like a flannel button up shirt. Uh, the only the only like thing that's like out of the ordinary is that she's got that like uh, two toned hair where the back of the hair is like is dark is brunette and then she's got like white I think the, the video is blurry but the front like her bangs are dyed like platinum blonde or white or something. It's white, yeah. It's basically she's she's like g- pretty heavily graying and she has patches of her bangs now that are white. And her, the rest of her hair is gray. She's wearing like that. You hit it right on the head when you said Roseanne, because she's wearing the Roseanne Bar red and white checkered flannel shirt from the Roseanne Show. Uh, and um, obviously, you know she's an eld- older old, and she's an older person now who's been you know out of the spotlight. So she just looks like a normal fucking human. Like I, I never would have known that that is Betty Page. Um, yeah, and in in some ways she doesn't. She like when when I say and when you say I think that she looks like a normal lady. I think part of that is you almost expect based on the the story, you almost expect her to look wear that story on her sleeve and kind of look like oh this is somebody who's been through some horrible shit and has had struggled with mental health issues like you know video footage of of Daniel Johnston in his older age before he died like you know you're just like this dude he's. He's looking rough like he's 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 been through some shit. 
uh, she doesn't look like that. Not to say that she isn't struggling with that, but that she just she just looks like a normal, unassuming person. Yeah, yeah, completely. Betty Page was so taken aback by this new fame that she initially befriended Dave Stevens and eventually asked him for royalties on the Betty Page artwork that he had generated. <laughs> the way that's worded is funny. It makes it seem like she like honey potted him. Like, let's be friends. Oh, great. Yeah, we're great friends. We've been hanging out. You're my friend, right, Dave? Yeah, of course. Well, there's something I want to talk about, but also like perfectly understandable. Like that's the, that's my thought is like she got hugely she had this huge resurgence in popularity because some guy just like basically stole her likeness while she was in a mental health facility. Like that that's kind of fucked up in a way. Yeah, and they ended up working out a deal where she got a percentage of the artwork sales and Frankly, then I think they had a good relationship for a number of years. And then I think they had a falling out because her mental health issues kind of got in the way. And either she asked for more royalties or she was asking him to do things that weren't a reality or she just got angry at him. Because I think especially later in life, she just had a lot of anger issues stemming from either the schizophrenia or I've also read a couple of places that she might be bipolar or, you know, there's, you know, she's she has mental health issues that I think are not unrelated to the fact that she was abused as a child. Yeah, for sure. Of course. I mean, like like I said before, that that first paragraph of this was like the the density of darkness in that paragraph was off the charts. Yeah, completely. It would be after living on Social Security benefits and royalties that Paige died of a heart attack December 11th, 2008. She got to she got to miss the the housing crash, but, you know, got to, got to see the silver lining of these things. She's on the deathbed and she's like, oh, at least I won't have to deal with that housing crash. Yeah, just didn't have to, didn't have to watch just the, the, the Iraq Forever War play out on the national stage. I was an A and A plus student all three years. So you must be pretty smart. No, I was very active in extracurricular activities. I was ROTC sponsor for all three high schools in Nashville. I was co-editor of our... A weekly newspaper, the Foghorn. I was co-editor of the Echo uh, Annual. I was program chairman of the Dramatic Club, and I was in plays all the time. And I was a member of the College Club and the French Club. I got around in high school. <laughs> now, the Echo, was that the paper, or was that the yearbook? The Echo was the yearbook. Now, did you ever any, enter any beauty contests in Nashville? One time, uh, when Rita Hayworth came to Nashville in uh, Cover Girl, the movie she starred in, they had a contest for the Nashville Cover Girl, and they were doing it all over the country in various large cities. And I entered a headshot and a full-length shot, and I was second, second a girl who was going to a student at Vanderbilt University won it. But I played second, and I was very pleased about it. I got $50 for being second. She got $100 <laughs> for winning it. <laughs> now, you you and your sister, or one of your sisters, I think you used to play, I read you play program, or you would do yeah. modeling. Can you tell me about that? When I was 11 years old, my mother couldn't, at that time get work and she couldn't take care of all six of us children so the, my two sisters and I were put in a Protestant orphanage for a year 
and we started playing program. It was my idea. A bunch of girls would sit around in a circle, and one would stand up in the center and point to various ones in the circle and tell them to perform, either to sing or dance or act out or some, some scene or something like that. And I was always asked to do the hula. I was very good at doing the hula when I was 11 years old, so they thought. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing. I was just wiggling from side to side. <laughs> and that's, and I, <clears throat> I learned to pose from movie star pictures in magazines and newspapers. There was a, a brown section in the Sunday paper, the Nashville, Tennessean, and they always had movie star pictures in that. I just had to point out, this is this has nothing to do with the episode, but we're watching this interview on YouTube, and this is a comment from this YouTube video from a user named Kristen Bangs. This was very helpful for my research. I'm writing a book about my cat, Miss Bangs. In it, she learns who she was in a past life. I'm basing her human character on Betty Page and Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> God, that's fucking stupid. Uh, yeah, but no, I mean, you know, I think it's just interesting to hear, you know, some of those biographical things from in Betty Page's own words. Um, my final thoughts are, man, is it fucked up what that woman had to deal with. It's very interesting how she became a cultural icon and uh, I don't see her going away anytime soon, which is really interesting because very few people are kind of culturally exhumed from our past and then continue to sustain relevance um, over time, which is fascinating. And uh, also, uh, unlike Spender Spice, you jerked off to her all the time. <laughs> uh, like, like, like Betty Page. Like, like, I like Betty Page. She's cool. Uh, Spender, what are your closing thoughts? Yeah, it's like it's like the it's like the um, it's like Schrodinger's bleakness, because one interesting aspect of it that I thought of just now is in a way. And, you know, let me qualify this that I'll you know, this isn't to excuse anything that happened to her, obviously. But in a way, this is actually kind of the platon the, the way that her career resurgence happened is almost like the, the platonic ideal of something that we've talked about frequently, which is this idea of suffering in obscurity and and toiling away in, uh, in, in poverty and lack of recognition for your entire life and then dying and then your work becoming massively culturally important and you as, a, as an artist, as a, a, a thinker, as a philosopher, whatever – being retroactively applied with greatness and and cultural import, but never getting to see any of it because you di you're di dead already. And uh, Henry Darger as the example of like the worst bleakest version of it, where he dies and seeking seeking love and, and love and acceptance his entire life, he dies, and then he gets that and he gets recognized for his capacity for wanting love and acceptance. Betty Page in a way she had she she lived this life suffering away in uh relative obscurity and the issues that she dealt with with uh her early childhood traumas and her struggles with mental health later on 
And then, but instead of dying and then having this cultural resurgence, she went away, was sort of removed from public life. She has the cultural resurgence and then she comes out almost like like coming out of the cocoon to a world in which she has achieved this cultural import and this like recognition for what she's done and this this like re, this reexamination of her as a great figure right but she gets to just live in that and almost like experience it, experience it secondhand because it's this whole other life that she had that was separated by this moment where she went away and was living in this mental health facility for a decade and then she gets to come out and just kind of bask in the fact that she is seen as this great figure. Uh, would I trade if, if given the option, if the option was like, do you want to like create art and and like live in obscurity for your entire life and then die and then become and then be seen as one of the greatest artists of all time? Or do you want to live and actually experience that, but you have to have experienced like horrible traumas being molested as a child I don't think I would choose that option. I don't I'd like th this isn't to say like, oh, yeah, everything was great for Betty Page. Yeah, I would not trade that. It, it, so it's like, like I said, it's the Schro it's the Schrodinger's bleakness, because I think that in a way, the, the thing that happened is like the thing that we always talk about that would be better to happen for these people. But I don't think that really excuses how how much she suffered in the horrible traumas that she experienced throughout her life, for sure. So it's only it's only it's only for Betty Page to say whether or not like that shook out in a way that she felt was worth it. And we'll never know because she's dead. Well, on that note, I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me online at HeyDaveBaker.com. Spandrew, where can people find you? You can't find me anywhere because I got to end this. So follow us on social media and listen to the next episode where I'll go into my spiel in more in-depth. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.